And it's a pleasure to welcome our first guest to the program today. He's written a piece recently at theconversation.com entitled Skepticism, Not Objectivity, is What Makes Journalism Matter. A pleasure to welcome Professor Ivor Shapiro from the School of Journalism at Ryerson University in Toronto to our show. Professor Shapiro, Ivor, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Sterling. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, sir. It's good to have you with us. And to start the uh, to start this conversation off, I believe we should probably just take a moment and separate and define the two words that uh, that really make the piece that you wrote: skepticism and objectivity. Which would you like uh-huh. to take first? <laughs> well, um, it depends if you like bad news first or good news first. Um, the the bad news is is objectivity. Uh, it's it's a word that that has been used in, you know, like common parlance about journalism for, you know, for, I don't know, about 150 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, 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 it really was never a word used about journalism by anyone who had, to be honest, sort of thought about it very carefully, I think, because the the word, you know, the word really implies that, 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 that the thing you are thinking about is an object, um, which typically journalists are not very interested in objects. They're interested in subjects. They're interested in people, and people have feelings and 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 experiences. And journalists themselves have feelings and experiences. So it's pretty hard to expect journalists to be objective about anything. But somehow, or other in our in our kind of thinking and talking about journalism as 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 a society, and it's not just Canada, but pretty much. Uh, many English-speaking, most English-speaking countries, the mm-hmm. word objectivity has been used. The skepticism word is a word that that I I have always preferred because it implies that journalists will 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 bring all of their life experiences and all of their feelings and heart to 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 the work and uh, and to their uh, to the way they treat uh, subjects, sources. Uh, the people who are affected by their stories, their audiences, mm-hmm. and that they will apply that heart with skepticism, meaning, you know, if, if uh, you presumably right now are listening to me skeptically, you're waiting for me to say something that you either don't understand or don't think is right or just isn't clear, and you'll jump in as soon as I do, which I probably already have, and, and ask me another question. <laughs> So the idea, though, of, of objectivity has been completely accepted by the consuming uh, end of this equation. The media, on the other hand, and those of us in it, may have varying degrees of uh, commitment to the notion of objectivity. But I'll tell you, most consumers of news, Ivor, have completely bought into the notion of objectivity. They think uh, that your your typical good reporter is a, is a man or woman with the... Uh, crazy capability of being able to divorce themselves emotionally from every story they cover and just do it analytically and factually. And whether or not that's true, I think that's what most consumers think objectivity means. Well, you know, to be honest, you probably... You you might know more about this than I because you're talking, I think, to your audience all the time, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Um, and you're hearing from them all the time. So uh, you know, hands up, those in the audience, we can see you all. You know who think that Sterling is right? That you think that you, the audience members, think Sterling is uh, is objective and should be objective. Mm. My guess. 
observing is it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, that the word has become a sort of shorthand for everybody. You know, I just want you to be objective about this for a yes. moment. A, a husband right. might say to a spouse, you know, <laughs> I would just want you to be objective about this, 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 this matter of your of of what we're going to spend on mm-hmm. or that. You know, but actually, that's just a kind of shorthand word. I think. For, you know, can we just be reasonable? Can we just be fair? And um, whether it's between spouses or between or, or about the news, people I don't think are going to really object to, 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 to the work of journalists if they, the, the audience member, think that, the, um, that the, 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 the work, the reporting, is fair and is reasonable. And is and, and and that some effort has been made to to be accurate, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to to get the facts right. <laughs> the objective word is only used when I think is only comes up as an objection if the audience feels that there's been some unfairness or that in the audience member's perspective the article the the sorry the the item whether on radio online or wherever is um, is taking a side. And particularly if the side being taken is one that the audience member disagrees on, dis- disagrees with, and then suddenly comes the word objector. But you know, the the other, if I may, you know, the other thing I would take issue with is is that is that members of the media don't sometimes use this word as an expectation of themselves. The first thing I would say is that is that it is less common in Canada than in. Uh, you know, a few kilometers to the south of you in Vancouver, mm-hmm. where, where I mean, across the border, where in fact the word objective has continued to be common parlance for U.S. journalism, for for much more, much more routine word, until very, very recently, and I mean only about five years ago. Uh, really, some some serious recons. Well, maybe maybe the last twenty years has been a a little bit of a movement away, but editors still use it about journalists, about their expectations. And reporters and producers in the media do tell about being told by their editors, their bosses. That's not objective. You're not being objective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the trouble is, just as I was saying about audience members, it's true for editors as well. It's a very selective kind of criterion, and it's extremely hard to fight back. Yes, I am being objective. Well, of course, I'm not being objective. I know I'm not being objective. I'm a human bloody being. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, you know, and you mentioned, though, and it's, it's good that you did, because the last five years have decidedly put a real warp and a real strain on the credibility of, of the news media, uh, particularly, of course, now we have it in Canada. We're no, by no means uh, uh, not guilty of any of this stuff. But, for example, during, during the, the, the last election you had in the United States, now we're talking here, Iber, we had the Trump channel, Fox News, the anti-Trump channels, MSNBC and CNN. And I mean, there were clearly sides taken, lines d- distinctly drawn, and the news, the same story. And I, I, I get both Fox and CNN, and I watch them both equally because it's important to me that to, to get those two treatments of the news, knowing full well that somewhere in the middle of the two lies the real news. And this has become, uh, a, a, it's, it's uh, a, accelerated to the point where the phrase 
fake news is become very popular and very uh, um, very comfortable for for a lot of consumers now to make as a complaint about the news channels they don't like. Exactly. Yeah, I, I you know, I completely, I, everything you just said, I completely agree with the <clears throat> the problem with uh, the the. The one thing I would say about this is that oftentimes when people, consumers of news uh, and journalists themselves sometimes, when, when they're talking about media, news media, and, and you just stop and you ask that skeptical question, which medium do you have in mind right now? Mm-hmm. And they'll say, well, you know, like CNN or Fox, right? Those two channels particularly have come to define the mass media in the common mind on this continent. And, um, of course, you and I know that, um, that I think much of the content on both of those channels is not journalism at all. That's right. right? It's opinion. Yeah. It's opinion. It's, well, mm-hmm. and it's not just opinion. It's advocacy, right? So, so you know, th- th- there is a sort of side question about journalists and opinions, but, but you know, Fox, to its credit, and it's pretty much the one of the few things I will say to Fox's credit, but, but, but no, Fox, to its credit, is, has, has had a traditional distinction between what it calls the news division and the... The, the, uh, the, uh, the comment, yeah, that's right. At well, least they, they at least separated out. Joining us from the School of Journalism at Ryerson University in Toronto is Professor Ivor Shapiro. Uh, Professor Shapiro, I'm quoting from a piece that you wrote recently. Uh, in journalism school classrooms, I don't know how many times I've heard graduate and undergraduate students saying words to the effect of, quote, we know objectivity is impossible, but we've been taught to aim for it anyway. This uh, part of a piece that Professor Shapiro wrote recently at theconversation.com, it's entitled Skepticism, Not Objectivity, is what makes journalism matter. And Professor Shapiro, journalism is mattering less and less to Canadians. We see poll after poll, and there's one out this weekend from our friends here in Vancouver at Research Company uh, talking about the public distrust of the media rising. Now, I have to I have to say that a lot of that public distrust is generated by social media. That uh, uh, of course is a real wild west show in terms of credibility or not. Uh, but that's uh, it it is uh, also uh, a trend that we've seen in terms of public confidence in our media. It's diminished over the years and is it because of objectivity do you think, Ivor? Um, I think it's, I think it's, uh, you know, okay, may may I be skeptical for a moment? Sure. (laughs) Um, So when we speak about polls saying something about public attitudes, it's really a, it's always more complicated than it looks. So um, you were just talking before the break about, um, CNN and Fox, right? Mm-hmm. And we were, I think, agreeing that a lot of time when people talk about the media, the news media, that's kind of the paradigm they have on their mind because there's so much of it everywhere. Every time one goes into a public area, one of these channels is on the screen and so forth. Sure. And, and people have it on in their homes all the time. And they hate it on the whole. <laughs> they hate what they see, but there's something quite seductive about it. Mm-hmm. But they also have clear preferences about which of the two channels they like. However, during that break, 
you and I and everyone, presumably, who's listening to my voice right now, was listening to the news Mm -hmm. and the weather and the traffic. And if they really distrusted what CKNW was telling them about what happened yesterday or what's happened overnight or what the traffic's like or what the weather's going to be, they actually probably wouldn't be listening to my voice right now. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so there, there is a kind of uh, disconnect there. There's a wonderful new study. Your, your audience members can, can Google it. Reuters, Reuters Institute out of Oxford just released a study about trust in, in what makes people trust or not trust the, the news media. Okay. And a lot of the time, um, the, the, the trust is directly related to the question of bias, the perception that journalists are biased. Yes. And I think, you know, it really, it, it correlates very closely to what kind of news media those audience members are consuming. So, you know, if you're consuming uh, a certain, if, 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 you're, if your brand that you, uh, and by the way, the other thing the report shows is that the, the, there's a huge brand awareness in audiences. So, so they are inclined to place their trust in a particular news brand. Mm-hmm. It's actually quite surprising how, how, how hugely that is held. So if they tr- basically what that's saying, Sterling, is if they trust you, they trust you. They may say they distrust the news media, but you, Sterling Fox, maybe they trust you, and maybe they trust the news that CKNW is bringing them every morning because they see no reason to distrust it. Well, good point, and and I hope that the question of bias comes up unless they disagree with the particular bias that they hear. Well, that's true, and I think if there's anything that uh, they can trust, my my listeners can trust me to be on a fairly consistent basis. Actually, Ivor is skeptical. I, I tend to I, I tend to approach uh, most of my my subjects with I'm fully prepared not to believe a word you say, <laughs> and, yeah. and I think that's very helpful because in a lot of cases uh, it, it allows uh, challenges to some of the uh, existing uh, uh, concepts that are brought forward. Uh, the other part about this, though, I think really we need to talk about ever so briefly because we don't have all the time in the day is the way yeah. the media is managed by the people I- in the news. In other words, we're right in the middle of a global pandemic right across Canada, right around the world, I find a, an appalling lack of what you call annoying questions from the huh. Canadian media, from the world media for that matter, but we'll focus on the domestic front. I find, and, and you go to press conference, here's Dr. So-and-so, here's Minister So-and-so. Now, members of the media will be allowed one question and one follow-up, and then we move along. So there's no room for annoying questions. They're managing the media into tiny little boxes that are convenient for them, not for the media and certainly not for the for the consumer at home. That's exactly true. It's a huge problem, media management and, and message management on the part of people with power and the the, uh, the, the, the the legitimate expectation that audience members can have or will have of journalists is that they won't be satisfied with that government message or that business message, but mm-hmm. will do what they can to apply skepticism, you know, after the conference ends. So then, um, how do uh, how does today's successful 
journalist navigate these uh, shark-infested waters of government overmanagement, uh, 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 and and it's not just government. I mean, a lot of news today uh, yeah. features reporters basically rewriting, re reading, rewritten press releases, which may or may not come from government or corporations or whatever. That passes for news in some quarters in this country. So, uh, uh, in terms of making it more uh factual there's a good word factual not objective factual how do we get there yeah it's really hard uh, you know i mean i think i think we get there by by the routines we are taught and learn from experience in the business of of applying uh, you know of 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 asking it, it, these are it's not a, it's not exactly rocket science you know you sort mm -hmm. of say well what's missing from this press release, who who would know, uh, you know, who would know, who would at least have a different perspective on what might be factual, and then let me see, you know, how the sort of normal rules of logic apply. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, you know, this word routines, though, does imply you have time for this, and one of the real problems that has happened, as we all know, is that is that the news industry is actually in a bit of a crisis, right? It has been for several years in a crisis. So some, to some degree, some, some operations just don't, don't offer their employees, their reporters and producers enough time to do this kind of skeptical questioning. It's much easier and much quicker to get the quick hit. Mm-hmm. Well, and the other part about it, and Canadians know about this, the government uh, several years ago set aside a $600 million slush fund in, yeah. in reaction to the fact that the media, as you accurately point out, is in a bit of a downturn. Uh, the pandemic has really uh, done a lot of media companies right in. They were already in tough shape financially. I'm thinking print particularly here, Ivor. But uh, the government established this $600 million rescue fund for Canadian media. Now, in order to be... Uh, a recipient of some of that lolly, one would think one would have to be sort of lined up in tandem with the government's uh, way of doing things. And that leads to a, a degree of skepticism on the part of the Canadian media consumer. Are these people telling us the news or are they telling us the news the way they think the government wants it to be told so they can qualify for some government money? It allows for skepticism on the part of the viewer or the listener that I don't think was there before. What do you think? Um, two two points. First of all, I think it's great when audience members are skeptical of journalists. I often say uh, it's a bad idea to trust a journalist. It's just as it's a bad idea to trust almost anybody. You always want to, you know, you you're selling me this fridge in Best Buy, uh, you know, but but how do I know this is in fact the best buy for me mm. rather than rather than the fridge you're getting the most commission on or whatever? Right? Uh, nothing nothing to do with Best Buy, obviously, but. So skepticism is good. However, a little bit of skeptical questioning about the fund you've described as a slush fund would probably um, change one's perspective. So this, the, the fund is, in fact, administered arm's length. It goes directly to employ um, what are called and identified in public as... Um, uh, I'm sorry, I am blocking on the word, but it's a, I think it's a local journalism initiative, I think is the word. As local journalism initiative reporters, the, 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 the media are 
all news media are all eligible equally for the fund. And if one actually goes and looks at who gets the money, you'll see that there is there is absolutely no political bias being exercised in who gets the money because it's imp- it's not administered in that kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not administered by government at all. The money is well, not given out is. by government. Mm-hmm. So and and in fact, you know, the the publisher of the Winnipeg Free Press, for example, I heard him speak at a conference the other day in in Finland. Isn't this a wonderful world that I can be listening to him in Finland? But the the, the he was he he was saying, you know, that their local news initiative reporter, who's appointed for one year, young journalist, happens to be a graduate of my school, yay, is the busiest journalist in the newsroom and the most productive journalist, in his opinion, in the newsroom. I bet everybody else in the newsroom loved that comment. But the fact is, you know, it's work that is being done reporting on what is happening locally by journalists who otherwise wouldn't have jobs. Um, So I actually don't think, if if the public looks into and checks out what I just said, I don't think there is grounds for skepticism about that. It's very transparent. It's taxpayer dollars ensuring that local communities that otherwise would have less news available, less reporting available, are actually well served with information that they need to. Well, there you go. There you go, friends. A little, a little clarification, perhaps, on uh, on something that uh, is uh, misunderstood. I'm being kind uh, by many Canadians. Professor Ivor Shapiro, I thank you for your time this morning. It's been a fascinating conversation. I've been looking forward to it for a while, and hope to have the opportunity going forward to continue it uh, uh, because this is this is far from over. Thanks for today, though. Oh, it's so great to talk to you. L- lovely to meet your listeners. Indeed. Professor Ivor Shapiro joining us from the School of Journalism at Ryerson University in Toronto. The piece, by the way, that brought him to our attention is available at theconversation.com. You should check it out. Skepticism, not objectivity, is what makes journalism matter. Couldn't agree more. I'm Sterling Fox, and it is a pleasure to welcome Cody Green to the program. Mr. Green is the founder and co-CEO of, well, a brand new company that uh, we're kind of interested in talking about. It's called Canada Drives, and it's all about buying a car online, which they say is the fastest, most convenient way to buy a car. Bought online, delivered to your door. Quoting from the website here. Cody Green, good morning and welcome to the show. Morning, Sterling. Glad to be here. Well, it's great to have you with us. Tell us about your company, first of all, Cody. How long have you been around, and what uh, what got you into the online car business in the first place? Yeah, so a bit of a journey. Uh, I come from the automotive industry, so I was in sales. Uh, and actually, our company, while new to the online car sales, we've been in the automotive finance industry since 2010. And so okay. the company is actually, I guess, 11 years old now. Um, and the, the sort of push into delivering a completely online car shopping experience kind of came from a, a few things. Um, obviously, COVID-19, we saw that people are getting comfortable doing more and more of their shopping online and, and some of sure. forced to. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were also just interacting with hundreds of thousands of Canadians every year for the auto finance portion of car shopping and we were really listening to them and saying like, Hey, we're, we're ready for this. We want this. We want to do more of our car shopping. 
Mm. So and it's so so it's not at all by accident if one is, for example, learning about your company for the first time, Cody, and you go to uh, CanadaDrives.ca, and one of the things once you start poking around is you spend some time in your resources section, for example, on things like understanding car loans. And, you know, that's a really, really important thing to have, but I'm, I was surprised by it only because I didn't expect you to have that kind of background. So tell us more about the years that you spent, your company has spent, just in backstopping and financing Canadian car buyers. Yeah, so in 2010, uh, and so this is a rewind right now, I, I came came out of the auto industry, and I when I was looking at what... Canadians were kind of getting most frustrated with and where there was maybe the biggest pain point. Auto finance really sort of was the one that was glaring to me. Uh, it was the one that took the most amount of time uh, in the dealership. It was the part where customers felt like they didn't have the full information. That there wasn't that transparency that they were looking for. Mm-hmm. And so in 2010, we, we enabled Canadians to apply for auto financing online they get all of their terms, they understand exactly what they're eligible for, and then they can go shopping into the dealerships with confidence, sure. um, which, is, which is a pretty big step for, for people back in 2010. So, Cody, uh, once you received that, uh, that you had been approved for a car loan, then you could go into a dealership or whatever, knowing with confidence that you had the money that you were going to try and negotiate down to, right? So now that you've, you've established, first of all, there's a marketplace for people who want to do this online approach. Back in the day when you started out, just arranging online financing for car loans. What percentage nowadays, Cody, before you even got into the the car delivery end of the business, did you see a growth in percentage of people happy to make their their, uh, financing arrangements for car purchases online rather than going in person to a financial institution? Yeah, we saw pretty tremendous growth year over year. And, and that's just the, the market in general, just people being more confident to do more online and, and sort of demanding more online services. And, mm-hmm. it, it, and people want those, those, that information, e- even if they end up not using us, like, hey, what were my options? What are my options? Um, and so it's, it's really about giving people as much transparency and, and understanding of, uh, of the process as possible. Okay, so then you've, you so you've built up this client base from from very small to a very successful, very uh, very manageable, fun number. So what then propels you across the line to move into the actual car business, getting you know, moving past uh, making the financing arrangements, Cody, and actually uh, having the the vehicles first of all available to to shop online for, and then delivering them to people's driveways. Yeah, so this has always been in our roadmap. I would say this last year, it just got accelerated. So we started on the finance and we knew that was a big pain point, but we've been listening to our customers for a number of years. And there's a bunch of things that they just didn't love about shopping for a car mm. um, that we thought we were able to address. And, and the fact that it's online, the fact that it's uh, being delivered to the door. Well, those are, there's a, those are sort of great benefits to our service, but I don't think they're necessarily even the sort of defining features. When we look to, to give people a better way to shop for a vehicle, we kind of went from the top to the bottom. It's like, what are they saying to us they don't like today? And what are the things that we can improve? 
Ah, okay. So what was it that, and, and because there's a whole other uh, side of questioning, we need to take a break here in a second. I want to find out about this sight unseen business, but just to follow up on that, you, you determined through your years in the car financing business that there was actually a few, a, a bit of a list of people, of things that people really didn't like about shopping for cars. What didn't they, didn't they like the most Cody? What, what bugged people the most? about shopping for cars? I think the, the things that were topping out the list were a feeling of a lack of transparency. I, I think they felt confident doing all their research, but once they got to the dealership, maybe they, they didn't have all the information, some of the information was being withheld. I think some people complained about the pressure of, of having to make a decision while there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the convenience of it all too, the average time spent at the car dealership is, is over four hours. Um, and that's assuming you find your car at your first place. Yes. It's, and I think people today, they, they just want things to happen on their own terms, their own times and faster. And so uh, that's exactly once you, once you determine that, and of course you've been leaning in that direction for years anyway, once you determine that off you go and you add on the whole actual car delivery end to a business that's been basically helping people buy cars for 10 years. Exactly. Yes. Joined on the line by Mr. Cody Green, who is the founder and co-CEO of Canada Drives. This is an online car shopping thing. And Cody, let me just take you back to about a year and a half ago. And I went through a similar experience. I decided we did. We had decided we wanted to get a new car, not a brand new car, but a late model used car. We knew exactly what we want. We did narrowed it right down to we we even right to the sunroof and and all of the specs we wanted. And, and so eventually I started looking on Craigslist and whatnot and found uh, the car we ended up buying on Marketplace. And so there it is online. We're, we're and searching and doing all the homework and all that stuff. But th- there came a time when you had to, you know, start, start negotiating. And so I met the seller and we met in person so I could take the vehicle for a test drive. Now, all of this happened pre-pandemic. So it was okay to meet someone in a coffee shop and take their car for a drive with them sitting beside you in the front seat, uh, and and off you went. Now you can't do that, and nowadays, and and people are selling cars who don't want to do that. So I imagine the pandemic, if anything, has been a boost to your business simply for practical reasons, if nothing else. Yeah, I definitely think it's fast forward the the sentiment of customers a few years. No question. So the the part that, and this is the part that you need to help me with, Cody, uh, the part where I, I met the seller and I took the car for a test drive before I bought it. Now that your, the, the online purchasing, uh, arrangement that you have, the, the purchaser searches the, uh, available, uh, inventory selects a vehicle and that vehicle gets literally delivered to their driveway, uh, sometimes within 24 hours. And then what, what, what sort of, uh, safety, uh, capabilities are built in for the customer? Should that turn out not to be the car of their dreams, Cody? Yeah, so maybe one other thing that's worth mentioning too, you were describing your car buying experience. So when you find a car on Canada Drive, and we have almost 500 vehicles on there right now, you're going to get 35 photos plus. They're all high resolution. They're going to show you every detail of the vehicle. You're going to get the full inspection report. Mm -hmm. 
the vehicle history report. So those are things, if you're describing a private sale, you might be trying to hunt down on your own, but they're all going to be available sort of ahead of time on the website. I think the other thing you talked about was negotiation. So we price all of our vehicles like best price first. So it's Mm -hmm. no negotiation. We're confident we have great prices on our vehicles and and our data supports that. And Mm -hmm. so you've taken a bunch of those aspects out of it. I think the thing you're concerned with is like, well, what what about that test drive? Like, well, what happens? What happens next? So you buy a car from Canada Drives, you're going to book in your delivery time. And as you mentioned, it can be the same day. So you could, some people buy their cars on their credit card. Um, in the morning, get it dropped off after work. We're going to bring it in our our trailer. Um, So it's a completely contactless delivery, which is important for a lot of people right now. Sure. Um, We're going to be there for an hour. You're going to have an hour to inspect the vehicle. If you don't want an hour, we'll obviously leave earlier. Um, But you can make sure it is as described. Um, But the big thing for our customers, and this is something that people really love is they have sort of seven day love it or return it policy. Oh, okay. So this is the thing with test drives and and I sold cars back in the day is like, I would get in the passenger seat with someone and we do my little predetermined route for, for five minutes or 10 minutes. And they'd be like, yeah, it seems like it's good, but what are, what are we learning in this test drive with our love it or return it policies? You drive that car for seven days, you drive it to work, you drive your kids to school if, you're, if your brother-in-law is a mechanic, he can have a quick poke at it too if you want. And you really have that assurance that you made that great decision. And if you don't, if you're like, you know what? Actually, the shade of blue wasn't what I thought. Yeah. We're going to come pick it up. Wow. Okay. Where do you get your cars, Cody? The, the short answer is anywhere we can get great vehicles. The, the longer answer is we, we buy directly from customers. Um, so one of our, our missions is to be the easiest place to buy or sell your car in Canada. And so okay. that's a big priority for us too, is like, as, as much as there's pain in buying a vehicle, I feel there's equal or more pain when it's time to sell your vehicle on the Craigslist or similar. So we buy a lot of great cars from Canadians. Um, we work with dealerships across uh, the country. Um, so often the dealership will get a vehicle on trade that won't make sense for them. Pretend they're a BMW store and they got a Ford F-150 on trade. Mm-hmm, right. Um, so we'll get a vehicle like that. Um, and just a variety of places across the country. And how, uh, how big is the company now? It's, it's, it's growing exponentially as we speak, but how big, how, uh, how far from Vancouver, for example, do you deliver vehicles? So we deliver across British Columbia um, and our aspirations and our goals are to be serving over 80% of Canada by the end of 2022. And so we have some pretty aggressive uh, expansion plans in the next year. As far as like the size of our company, we have around 450 people. Wow. Okay. And headquarters is here in Vancouver, right? It is. Yeah. Uh, okay. So by way of, we've only got a couple of seconds left here, Cody, by way of messaging in terms of, uh, of, of people who are maybe a little skeptical still about the notion of buying a sight unseen car, what's, what's the strongest feature, uh, of, of this approach? I think it really is the sum of its parts. It's you're going to get full transparency. We have great prices. And you're going to have that assurance that if something wasn't as described, we're going to come pick up that vehicle. So it's, it's the, the number one destination in BC to shop for cars. We have more than anyone else. 
and it's growing every day. So I think that the offer is really compelling. Interesting stuff. Cody, we wish you considerable continued success with Canada Drives, and thanks so much for being with us this morning. All right. Thanks a lot for having me, Sterling. A pleasure. There's Cody Green from CanadaDrives.ca, an interesting new way to buy a car for Canadians and especially British Columbians. Check it out. Rick Zamperin joins us as well. He's back with us today from Hamilton, Ontario. Rick, the longtime play-by-play announcer for the Hamilton Tiger Cats, now the host of the fifth quarter on our sister station in Hamilton, CHML. Rick, good morning and welcome back. Sterling, good morning. Great to be back. Hopefully everyone in your neck of the woods is doing well. Well, we, we're doing as, as well as we can under some pretty tight restrictions. Not quite as tight as Ontario, but getting closer literally by the minute. Uh, Rick, you wrote a piece about the CFL. We talked about this maybe two months ago. Uh, and since then, the CFL has made some maneuvers. You and I were talking uh, back then about some kind of merger or arrangement of some description with uh, the Rocks XFL. That's still out there being worked on to one extent or another. But in the meantime, they have have modified their uh, 2021 season. So tell us, first of all, what the new season will look like and when and how likely it is to get off the ground. Well, the season was originally supposed to start on June 10th, and it would have featured a matchup of the uh, 2019 Grey Cup, the last Grey Cup that we saw between the Tiger Cats Mm. and the Blue Bombers. But of course, because of COVID-19, public health restrictions, Uh, No fans in the stands, a slow Mm -hmm. vaccine rollout. The Canadian Football League has decided to delay or postpone or push back the start of its season. So the target date, and I'll get back to that word in a second, is August the 5th. That'll give the CFL, you know, at least another month uh, to figure out, you know, how the vaccine rollout, number one, is going. And if more and more Canadians are able to get that jab in the arm, that means potentially more fans or some fans will be allowed into stadiums. And that is critical. And and back to the start date or the target date, because there's yeah. two kind of provisos surrounding that August 5th date. That can only happen. And the CFL commissioner, Randy Ambrosi, said this in, in black and white in his message to fans and, and people who follow the league is, number one, they need the okay from public health authorities. If they don't get that, you can, you know, scratch that August 5th date Uh, off the calendar if they do get that Mm. great there's still a second step and that second step is the green light from governments because as we know in bc and ontario across this great land uh you know different provinces have different set of rules so if all six provinces that house cfl teams say okay we like the return to play plan we like the testing plan that you've uh, rolled out uh, the vaccine is rolling out fine you can go ahead and play august 5th will be the kickoff date Interesting stuff. Do we know, Rick, yet whether the CFL teams themselves will require all personnel and administration staff to be vaccinated prior to the beginning of anything resembling a training camp? It's a good question, and we don't really have an answer to that right now. I think, you know, you look at the NBA, Major League Baseball, the National Hockey League, certainly the NFL last year, you know, very few, if any, players, coaches, trainers, front office personnel, Uh, have been or were vaccinated. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't think that'll be a stipulation uh, because, you know, the testing components will have to be there. Now, come August 5th, if, you know, the majority of the Canadian players or the American players in the CFL are vaccinated, then great. I think they're ahead of the game. But I think at the end of the day, the big kind of nugget that the CFL wants to see is fans in the stands, because financially, this is such a gate-driven league. And if there isn't 
25, 30, 40, 50 percent capacity in some of these venues. Financially, it's really going to be tough for these teams to make ends meet. In saying that, it's possible. It's doable. We know no government funding is is coming, but a lot of these owners and and we have three community owned teams. You know, they're going to have to take a haircut here in 2021 if they want to play with a limited amount of people in their stadiums. Well, and that's the one thing that perhaps a lot of Canadian football fans don't understand because we're so accustomed to the NFL and all of those teams. And yes, even in the abbreviated uh, NFL season, they did have fans in some stands in the the, the NFL, but they get so much more money per team from their television broadcast royalties uh, that, that, uh, yeah, fans in the stands matter, but it's almost gravy time compared to the television money available to Canadian teams, isn't it, Rick? It's different. Yeah, and that's why, you know, even Major League Baseball, the MLS to a certain extent, the National Hockey League are able to play in front of no or a very limited amount of fans because, yeah, it's those television contracts. And not only the current ones, but the ones that they have negotiated over the decades. The National Football League is really self-sufficient. It is the monolith of all professional sports leagues because their multi-billion dollar TV uh, package with you know uh, a variety of of, uh, of American TV networks, not just you know the traditional three, uh, they rake in billions of dollars, and they have a, yeah. a you know a revenue model in which all teams share into that pot. So, you know the Canadian Football League doesn't have a treasure chest or a war chest to tap into, or a you know they have a lucrative by Canadian standards TV deal, but it's just not enough. Yeah. So, what about fan interest? I know that you know some markets are more primed shall we say for the return of football uh, certainly the prairie provinces are good to go i know I, I saw a piece in the paper yesterday ottawa red blacks just itching to get going i know the tie cats are rolling but the three major markets the three markets the league needs the most rick toronto montreal and vancouver those are the towns that that have to pack the stands to the same degree that they do in regina and ottawa and i don't see the interest well, i'm only speaking now for vancouver it's 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 the market i know best uh, i don't see uh any resurgence of uh, of interest fan interest in the cfl they've dropped the ball on the marketing end in this market years ago and lost people almost deliberately how do they get them back that's the million dollar question you, you know we're talking about the three biggest markets in canada montreal toronto and vancouver and There is a great fear, and I'm not sure if the CFL or even the teams involved are going to admit this, but there is a great fear that the CFL has completely dropped off the radar in those markets. And when you look at those markets, you know, Toronto, for example, you have the Maple Leafs, the Raptors, two years removed from championship. You have Toronto FC, the very successful uh, uh, soccer team. You have the Toronto Blue Jays, who are a young and up and coming and exciting team. So you can see how the Argonauts have really fallen down the pecking order or the totem pole, Mm -hmm. so to speak, in terms of the relevancy. In Vancouver, you know, you got the Canucks. The Whitecaps are very popular. BC Lions have been around for a while. But, you know, you also look across the border and the Seattle Mariners and the Seattle Seahawks. And that all kind of grabs a little piece of the fandom pie, if you will. Montreal, no different. That's a hockey town with the Montreal Canadiens. They still love their Expos, even though they haven't been around for a couple of decades. But, uh, you know, there's a there's a turning point in which the Canadian Football League has has kind of passed that curve. It's really hard to get those fans back. So in those three uh, cities in particular, it's going to be very interesting to see the thirst for football in those communities. Because you mentioned it, in Hamilton, Ottawa, Regina, of course, 
Winnipeg, Calgary, Edmonton, Ottawa, those cities, they have a hunger for the CFL and they want it back yeah. and they want it back now. Those other cities have a lot of pro teams, not to say Calgary and Edmonton doesn't because they do as well, but they are really the heart and soul of those communities. Yeah, and maybe, you know, the government, uh, or the, the league might uh, take a page from the government and their approach on the budget. Uh, a lot of Canadians very skeptical about it, but nonetheless, the Liberal Party of Canada sees the pandemic as a political opportunity, and in their case, to refashion the economy. Not everybody happy about that part, but what I'm thinking is the CFL and their marketing department, especially sad beings they are, really could see this uh, Rick has a chance as an opportunity, not only to revive the league uh, and, and get people and players f- back on the field and fans, as many as possible back in the stands, but also an opportunity to refresh the public's appreciation of the league. And especially in Toronto, Montreal and Vancouver, it really could be an opportunity, don't you think? Without question. I mean, this is a critical year for the Canadian Football League. We know that they lost upwards of 60 to $80 million last year. You know, no money is coming in the revenue coffers so far this year. If they have to delay their season even past August the 5th and maybe into Labor Day, we know that, you know, more money is going out the window. Uh, We know that the Grey Cup has already been pushed back from November 21st to December uh, the 12th in Hamilton. So, you know, all these delays spell some bad news. But in terms of you know, getting back to those fans to say, hey, we're not only are we back, but we're going to be better than ever. Forget about the XFL for the time being. That is a long-term play that, you know, someday sure. we might merge and someday we might have some kind of shareable business model. But let's focus on the Canadiana of the CFL and get a lot of those fans back. It's not going to be easy, that is for sure, especially after being, you know, a, a mystery and an anomaly last year and not on anyone's radar. Um, whereas other sports did come back and the CFL wasn't able to. So it's a, it's a big mountain to climb. I wish them all the best to, to get to that summit. No kidding. And the best part about it, Rick, is it's a great product. It's not as though they're trying to flog something nobody wants or likes. It's a fantastic product. And I, I'm, I'm keeping everything I own crossed that we get back on the field this year. Thanks for doing this with us this morning. It's great to have you back on the show, Rick. You got it. Call anytime. All right, will do. Consider that offer taken up on already. There's Rick Zamperin, longtime play-by-play announcer for the Hamilton Tiger Cats, uh, joining us from Steel Town today. It is 826. That's it for our show this morning. Stand by for Money Talks with Michael Campbell coming up right after the news. With thanks to Julie Wong and fingers crossed, I'll see you first thing tomorrow morning. Have a great day. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.